0: European football show on the World Football Index, and um, I'm your host Alan Sealy, to from Seville of South Spain. And today's episode is going to be about uh, the recent success of the Portuguese national team. Uh, with me is two Portuguese football experts, uh, Tom Kounder in
1: Lisbon. Hi there, Alan. Thanks for
2: having me. No worries. and Aaron Barton in Liverpool. Hi, Alan. A pleasure like to be here. Looking forward to it.
0: Uh, Tom is the, the founder of Portugal. And Aaron is the founder of Coximo Jornada, and both are and the very well respected uh, voices in Portuguese football, um, so it's very good to have the both of them on with me today to discuss this interesting concept that kind of doesn't get the attention it deserves, I feel. Um, so I guess the best place to begin is in the beginning, uh, and try and briefly, albeit sweepingly, sum up Portugal's... Historical footballing heritage pre Fernando Santos, so pre 2014. So when Fernando Santos came into Portugal in 2014, what what kind of situation was he inheriting? Basically, to start with, you Tom.
1: Uh, yeah, okay. Well, if we I don't want to kind of make this a you know a, a thesis, but <laughs> if we just uh, go back a little bit further, and I think you can say there's two definite phases in Portugal national team football history, which is Pre two thousand, where Portugal was just, uh, if we if we're being blunt about it, was a little bit of a minnow in international football. Very rarely even qualified for uh, you know World Cups or Euros. Uh, when they did manage to qualify, they usually did quite well. Of course, nineteen sixty six World Cup being a case in point, and nineteen eighty four Euro. But uh, they only qualified for four tournaments ever before uh, two thousand. Since 2000, that just really marked a turning point because they've been to every single tournament. And so, you know, and as well as qualifying for every tournament since 2000, they've done very well, a lot of them, uh, even before Fernando Santos took over. Uh, and so, you know, that's a very definite kind of marker, I think, for Portugal's. Uh, I think one thing also we, we can say about Fen- the Fernando Santos era was Portugal have had some, you know, fantastically talented players, really, World-renowned players since 2000, especially you know Luis Figo, Costa, uh, Deco, you know these kind of players, which really could get into almost any national team in the world, and uh, and Pep. But uh, there was a kind of feeling in Portugal that they'd never win uh, a national tournament. I think 2004 Euro 2004 was kind of the culmination of that. You know, hosting the tournament and. Uh, Portugal, you know, really big hopes. And then after that disastrous start against Greece, uh, managing to turn it round, get all the way to the final, and then somehow managing to lose that game. Uh, You know, I think people just kind of, there's a kind of traditional pessimism among Portuguese football fans anyway. And I think Portuguese football fans just thought, yeah, you know, we've, we've got some great players. We've got some great teams. We've had some great teams, but we were never, you know, we were never actually you know, get over the line. We will never lift a major trophy. And of course that all changed with uh Fernando Santos and uh maybe Aaron can take over from there.
2: Yeah, so I mean everything Tom's just said there is 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 spot on. Uh, especially about those two areas. I mean, Euro two thousand being that sort of I know Tom, I think I think you've described it in the past as a as a coming of age tournament. And yeah. that was where you saw all these attractive players sort of come together, and they were playing with a style and a purpose. Now, the, as you say, amongst Portuguese football supporters, it always felt, at least to me, growing up watching Portugal, that they had this array of of attacking talent, and 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 they were offensively sound, and you know, had a really good midfield, but. They create a lot and lot of chances, but but not finish them off. There were so many games where Portugal would be the dominant side, and you know the game either dwindled out to a draw, or you know the opposition had catch them, cast them on the counter, scored a goal, and it seemed like Portugal just couldn't put those chances in the back of the net. And and you've got to think there was a period in time in international history when when Ronaldo went firing on all cylinders. And if you look at his statistics after a certain age, uh, you know, in the Celestial jersey, he's become a lot more productive in front of goal. Now, I think aside from the the pre 2000 and the post 2000 generations, you've also got this generation that we're, we're commenting on now that sort of was in the middle of the two, we call it the two golden generations, if you will. So you've got the generation of the 2000 and then the 2004 and you know it sort of started to phase out towards 2006 2008 and then you had this this middle phase this middle generation uh, that was was under the tutelage of uh, Carlos Queiroz and also uh, Paulo Bento who was in charge from 2010 to 14 so that just that gap before uh, Fernando Santos took over again that was a a generation that wasn't it didn't have Maybe the world stars of you, Rui Costa, the Figo Deco, uh, but it had heart, and we saw that in in twenty twelve. Did you know very well at the European Championships? Went out on penalties to to Spain at the time. That you know, some people look back and say that's the greatest one of the greatest international teams ever. Uh, and I think twenty sixteen. I think that was it all coming together. Uh, you know, Santos took over in twenty fourteen, and you We'll get we'll get more onto his his appointments. I'm sure later in the in the show, but it seemed like yeah, as Tom said, we we're nearly men. Portugal were the nearly men. Uh, you know they played nice football, but could they ever? Were they ever? You know, could we ever take them seriously? Could they ever win an international honor? And then, you know that's what Mister Santos has brought as so two major honors within the space of a couple of years. So
0: yeah, I get you. Yeah, and like just to touch on Euro 2004 because obviously Portugal hosted it. Tom, I assume you were at Euro 2004 being based in Portugal for the last uh, few decades. But like, what was the experience of that like and what was the reaction of the Portuguese public on their own home soil and their own kind of big occasion, you know?
1: Yeah, that was just, an, first of all, it was an amazing time to be in Portugal. You know, Portugal is a soccer-mad, football-mad country and, uh, you know, being the hosts of the big party, as it were. And uh, it all looked like it was going to be a damp squib after that that opening day defeat against Greece. But uh, Portugal just got themselves together and the whole tournament was a, a massive success and it was really incredible to to be in Portugal. Uh, you know, I think Portugal, Portuguese people are naturally welcoming people. And of course, uh, they love their football, of course. So it was, they just loved having all these huge, you know, it seems strange talking about it now, doesn't it, in these pandemic times, but having these, Huge, uh, you know, communities of, you know, Dutch fans, uh, French fans, Spanish fans, Italian fans, all over Europe coming here and, uh, you know, joining in the party. And uh, in terms of football, you know, Portugal had a a fantastic team then, you know, it was kind of post the golden, the original golden generation. But, uh, you know, Figo and Ricochet, they were still there, just coming towards the end of their careers and then. That team itself was a uh, you know really exciting team had a uh, maniche was really just tearing it up in midfield, and uh Ronaldo was just coming to the fore again and then, like you said, to use that that final was just i would say the the- ep- kind of epitomizes the Portuguese mentality towards football you know they'd played so well everything seems set to kind of crown this majestic tournament some people. Of course, we're all a bit biased here in Portugal, but a lot of people insist it's the best European Championships of all time, <laughs> in terms of just the organisation and the atmosphere around it. And uh, it seemed all set to to culminate in a you know a magnificent victory at the end, and then, like you said, to be undone by a team playing kind of the antithesis of uh, the football P- Portugal were playing. You know, very dour, very defensive. But you know, you can't really knock them for that. They uh, Greece just took the most of the players they had at the time, made the most of it and uh, really, to be honest, deservedly won that game because uh, they just completely shut out Portugal, got got the goal, did what they did to you know several other countries, Czech Republic and France in the previous rounds and ended up being champions. So yeah, that was uh, the tournament itself. I think people look back at it as a huge success and they're kind of Affirmation of Portugal as you know a real uh, kind of showing the best side of Portugal to and especially in to the football world, but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah it was a it, you know it, that was just a, a horrible day at, at the end it was so, <laughs> so 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 depressing so sad and uh, and like you said it's kind of ironic because of course twelve years later uh, Portugal where uh, the boot was precisely on the other foot. And it, you know, it's incredible, isn't it? Our history it repeats itself. Portugal were the huge underdogs. Portugal were playing at the home of the hosts. Uh, Portugal were playing a kind of dour, uh, kind of not very exciting brand of football. Very much going against their traditions uh, in that particular tournament, uh, and they ended up winning it. So you know that ended up being you know the the two the two tournaments. Uh, One of the saddest moments in Portuguese football history uh, to certainly probably the most, uh, the happiest moment in Portuguese football history.
0: I guess that leads in nicely into the Euro 2015 final. And um, I was really struck by when Ronaldo went off, Cristiano Ronaldo, how involved he was on the touchline alongside Fernando Santos. But just to ask, like obviously, Fernando Santos coming in 2014 changed a lot. And I'd like to ask you both what yeah, changed exactly and what you brought to make it a winning team. But also, how important was Cristiano Ronaldo in terms of being in that latter stage of his career where he really wanted to win international honors, and also he was a more senior player where he could really kind of you know dominate in terms of with his influence. So, what was it kind of a very kind of marriage of convenience almost between Fernando Santos coming in and changing things and Ronaldo having the stature to change things. Aaron, is that you?
2: Yeah, spot on. Um, I, I, A lot's been said about Ronaldo and his timing, his international career timing. So, lots of analysis done and lots of reports about him being sort of caught between these, these two generations. I, I, I'm sure you know a lot about the new um, golden generation, as it's being tipped in the media again, that's coming through, sort of as we speak. Uh, that's sort of brewing for the next couple of years, and then obviously the you know the generation myself and Tom mentioned before of, of two thousand, he was you know just a bit too soon for that. He he came onto the scene around two thousand three, two thousand four. So it's sort of like as he's been coming towards the end of his career, uh, and under Fernando Santos is is that. They've brought in a manager who was pragmatic, to say, to say the least. Uh, I mean, at the time, his appointment wasn't. I mean, we look back now and think he won the Nations League, he's won the European Championship, but at the time, it was it was seen a bit of a safe choice, someone a bit of a safe pair of hands, someone that won't you know won't upset the apple Carter a, a lot and and will play a safe team and hopefully guide Portugal to you know some decent results. What would happen after? You know, I'm unsure too many people could speculate. But then what you've got then, as you say, the marriage, you've got a good manager in Fernando Santos, and you've also got a Ronaldo coming, sort of well we say coming towards the end of his career, but I mean he looks like he's going to play until he's about forty five. But you know, any normal any normal footballer he ages normally is um you know, sort of this is this is his chance. This is if there's a if there's a, a good chance, this is it. And uh, obviously, as he goes off, you know, it, it's heartbreak. And then, you know, he starts orchestrating things from the sideline with, with Fernando Santos. And, you, I mean, you look back at those images now in the, the video, it's two men who who want it so badly. Uh, Ronaldo, Fernando Santos, is, he's been there, he's done it all, he's managed for years. He's managed club sides international sides. And Ronaldo... You know, he, Hadn't won an international honour with his, you know, with his beloved country, and um, you could see it on his face. You can see it on his face at full time when he, when he lifts his head up and starts screaming into the sky, you know,
0: crying his eyes out. What, what do you think, Tom? Do you think there's a great synergy between the stage of Ronaldo's career that he's in and Fernando Santos' appointment?
1: Yeah, well, it just, uh, you know, they just really clicked. The two of them clicked. You know, everything that Aaron said there is, uh, you know, just absolutely spot on. If you. There's an amazing video, you know. I've, a, a lot of people have probably seen this, uh, which is of Ronaldo at the end of uh, that final Euro 2016 final, giving a kind of winning speech, celebratory speech, in the dressing room, and uh, that is just such a good video because it kind of illustrates, uh, first of all, how much he, how much credit he gives uh, Fernando Santos in the in the victory. You know, he was insisted he said time and again you know you, you I think there's a part when he said you know your your words during this tournament you know they touched me they touched us you know they really kind of you know got through to us because uh, Fernando Santos right from his very first press conference he said the only thing I'm interested about is winning you know winning 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 it doesn't matter how we play and uh, it doesn't matter who I choose who I select that's the only thing I'm interested about you know, might seem like quite a banal thing to say, but if you look at the style of of play uh, since he took over, you know, he he was absolutely right. Portugal, uh, you know, he got quite a lot of criticism even during that tournament and even after it, remarkably enough, by some Portuguese fans for just kind of, you know, making Portugal a bit dull, you know, going against kind of the, like like we've talked about, the the flair kind of football, which you associate with uh, Portugal, certainly since the year 2000. But Fernando Santos always says, you know, he's not really interested in playing pretty football. He's interested in playing winning football, intelligent football. And uh, and that's what Portugal did. And uh, yeah, and Ronaldo just, you know, just went with that completely, 100%. And, you know, when you got the greatest player in Portuguese football history, uh, sh- and the, the coach, you know, such a strong relationship and such a, you know, such a good kind of symbiosis between the two, the, the rest of the players, really, they have no choice but to fall into line. And so I really think this is one of the, the biggest uh, reasons for Portugal's success at 2016. And since then, it's just the kind of spirit they've, they've built up in that Celeste Sound squad. And, uh, you know, that's really so much down to Fernando Santos and to Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, I even noticed this the other day, for example, when when Portugal played France, uh, they put in a very good performance in the Nations League a couple of weeks ago, a nil-nil draw, a bit unlucky, you could say, Portugal, maybe they could have even snatched victory because they probably had the better chances in that game. But one thing which really impressed me in that game was the way, uh, the the kind of work rate of players and players who you you don't really uh, associate them with being, you know, hard workers. For instance, Joao Felix, uh, I remember him dropping back so many times, uh, helping out defensively and doing a good job. Uh, Ronaldo himself, you know, Ronaldo in that second half when France were coming on a bit stronger at the start of the second half, you know, he was tracking back. And uh, you know, we talked about a 35-year-old captain who's done it all, and uh, you know, spends most of most matches now in the just uh, pretty much planted in the in the top third of the of the pitch, whereas playing for Juventus or Portugal. But he was tracking back. He made some crucial defensive uh, headers, uh, uh, you know, clearance headers at set pieces and everything. And I think that kind of epitomizes what Fernando Santos has done. Him and Ronaldo, you know, Ronaldo is led by example in that, in that respect. So, so, yeah, there's no, no doubt about it. Those two, uh, which is, you wouldn't really have, have thought it was the case. I remember when Carlos Queiroz was appointed Portugal manager, a lot of people were very excited precisely because of his relationship with Ronaldo because he was credited with really, you know, taking Ronaldo's game onto the next level uh when they when he was at Manchester United. Uh but you know that just went horribly wrong. They ended up falling out big time and K Roj just didn't know how to use Ronaldo at all. Uh basically he just turned Portugal into ultra defensive team and his whole attack employee was leaving Ronaldo up top to try and you know <laughs> resolve games on his own. And uh Ronaldo under Keiro I think he scored two goals in 18 games which was uh you know an absolute disaster for for him and for Portugal yeah. and uh, and uh, yeah and Fernando Santos completely the opposite you know like I said like Aaron noted there wasn't really an, an appointment which got most Portugal fans very excited very much seen as a safe pair of hands but, uh, but boy has he done a, a fantastic job
0: and could you explain a bit about Fernando Santos' uh, history like who is he what um, was his career as a footballer and as a manager and what led him to getting the job and then also I'd like to ask who were the key figures in your
2: 2016? Who is the kind of spying of the Portuguese team? Can start with you, Alan. yeah. So, um, so on the, on the topic of Fernando Santos, his pedigree. It was he came into it as a as a manager who had experience of of major tournaments, and I think that was massive because you can't underestimate the difference of tournament football to you know your 38 game season or whatever it may be in club football where it's much more of a uh, of a marathon whereas a tor- tournament uh you know as as everybody knows you can have one or two bad games in the group stages and before before you know it it, it looks like you're going home so it's not just how tactically flexible you are how you know how how well you can put up across your principles and you know the squad of players you've got at your disposal it's it's how do you manage that tournament setting it's how do you manage those games over 90 minutes where you know, it, it literally is the difference between you getting on a plane and then going back, and then before you know it, you're playing again next week. you know, in a different city playing it. It's just very, very different. I think there's a, a different vibe, and obviously you're together the entire time in club football. You know, you'll train, have days off, then you'll travel to the game, and then you might have a day off after the game. And then, but whereas in a World Cup or in the European Championship, it's everyone's together. Everyone's in a camp. You're all working towards the same goal now. Fernando Santos had experience of that. He knew how to how to cope with that, and and he'll have used those experiences with Greece, you know, taking them to the to the quarterfinals to to sort of to, to better Portugal's experience. And then in terms of the, the 2016, the, the key figures, and you go to Tom in a sec. My my key figures are just, I mean, it's hard to put names on it because I think the whole squad, to a man, uh, everyone that featured. defensively you had uh, Jose Fonten and Pip were just absolutely you know unbelievable just fantastic the full backs were were fantastic you had um, Renato Sanchez who just burst onto the scene it seemed like he hadn't really featured internationally and uh, Fernando Sanchez to his credit he loves giving players debuts he he, I think Daniel Pedence the other night was, was his 44th debut that he's given out since his uh, since his under his tutelage, which is you know, it's a testament to him as a manager. So I think he had a massive impact, uh, Renato Sanchez, especially in that game against uh, Poland to, to level it up after Lewandowski's opener. And then you know, it's just everybody, Ricardo karesma was in this this sort of second stage of his career where he'd sort of burst back into life after after being on the you know, the brink of the abyss for, for so long he sort of had uh, disappeared from, from, from everyone's mind and, you know, he came back and was playing fantastic football. Nani, obviously, Adair's came in in the final and, you know, that, that goal will, he's down in the Portuguese folklore and he will be forever but, you know, it's, it's I'll, let, I'll let Tom, because I can wax lyrical about this squad for the, for the entire day so, Tom?
1: Yeah, yeah well, you just hit the nail on the head there as well. I think, there's a couple of things also to say about uh, possibly a big reason why Portugal won your Euro 2016. Also, is that that season, that domestic season in Portugal, was a was a fantastic title race between uh, basically between Sporting and Benfica, and it looked like Sporting were going to win the championship, for the, uh, Jorge Jesus was had taken over quite spectacularly. It, he crossed over from Benfica to Sporting, and it looked like he was going to lead them to the to the title. Uh, Benfica came back strongly and just picked it at the end. But one thing that did is, uh, I think, all tournaments, it's very important, of course, that your key players come into it in good form and uh, and fully fit. And uh, this is something which has affected Portugal badly in in previous tournaments, especially with Ronaldo, of course, uh, and you know quite a lot of their their players, especially. A couple of years earlier world cup 2014 was an absolute disaster you know half of that squad were just completely out of form or, or had injury problems and uh Paolo bento got rightly uh you know pilloried by the press because he he just wouldn't change players he'd he'd always pick the same squad and basically the same team game after game didn't matter how fit they were how informed they were and uh and Fernando Santos really couldn't have been any different. I remember his first press conference, he said, uh, anyone uh is who is eligible to play for Portugal, I would give them a chance, you know, if they deserve it. Don't care how old they are, don't care how young they are, you know, I don't care about their history, if they're playing well, uh, they've got a chance. And he really backed that up. This this squad for Euro 2016, it was uh it broke two records. It was it had the youngest ever player. Portugal have taken to a major tournament. Renato Sanchez and had the oldest ever player, uh, oldest ever outfield player. Portugal have taken to a tournament, which was Ricardo Carvalho. Uh, you now this uh, this policy of Fernando Santos of playing, uh, you know, picking players on merit. You know, uh, you can't overstate how important that is because. You know, it gives all players a charge, keeps them on their toes, and the players who are picked then know that they have to be at the top of their game. Otherwise, someone else will come in for them. And, uh, and so you had these two factors, where uh, you know, for instance, Ricardo Carvalho, uh, Aaron just mentioned there, uh, Quaresma. Uh, these were players, and also Tiago during the Tiago Mendes during the qualifying campaign. These were players who were had either retired or had been frozen out. Uh, Previously by by Paulo Bento and uh, and you know Fernando Santos just uh, completely wiped the, wiped the slate clean, brought them back and they you know they all played key roles uh, and like I said players were really in in fantastic form you know Renato Sanchez, a very big reason that Benfica produced that really spectacular comeback to snatch the championship he was just amazing for uh, you know for Benfica those last few months and and. Fernando Santos recognised that, put him in the team, you know, and he did a fantastic job, you know, absolutely vital contributions, you know, not least the goal against Poland in uh I think it was the round of sixteen game. No, the quarter final game, quarter final, getting the equaliser. You know, and so the you know, the sporting players who had really had such a fantastic season, William Carvalho, you know, Cedric Suarez, you know, Adrian Silva, players like that, they just really stepped into that team and and carried on their their superb form. And, you know, that was, uh, again, a really, you know, a really big aspect in Portugal coming out on top. Uh, João Mario, of course, as well. You know, so there's no doubt about it. I don't think you can really look at that squad and pick out, you know, obviously as Ronaldo, Ronaldo would always be Ronaldo. But apart from him, you can't really just pick out three or four absolutely star players like you normally can in Portugal squads. I think just the whole squad as a, as a whole, for instance, in the group stage, it was amazing. The group stage is just three matches. Uh, by the end of the group stage, every single player uh, had played, had, had minutes apart from the two backup goalkeepers. So again, that just shows that Fernando Santos, you know, was intelligent the way he used the squad, full use of the squad. I think that's so important in terms of motivation for the whole squad everyone you know having a feeling that you're all contributing you're all in this together and uh it was very interesting because i think from the first match against uh iceland to the final i think perhaps there was about six changes to to the personnel so again another illustration that uh santa's just fully utilized all pieces at his disposal and uh you know what what better illustration of that than uh what Aaron just uh, mentioned there of course Eder who was perhaps one of the most uh, controversial picks in that he wasn't really rated at all by most Portuguese football fans or most of the press Uh, he was one player who didn't get too much of a look in during the the group stages and even the knockout stages Uh, you know came on in the final scored the most important goal ever in Portuguese football history so you know Santos really just got uh, was absolutely spot on. I think also one thing, I remember when we interviewed Bruno Alves for the book about Portuguese, uh, Portuguese Alessandro. And uh, I asked him, because Bruno Alves is of course one of these players who's played for Portugal for a long time. He's played actually under four different coaches. And I asked him to give a a quick description of, of each coach. And it's very interesting when he came to Fernando Santos, he said something which I think is so true. Which uh, I'm sure Aaron would back this up as well. Santa seems to have a a kind of feel for the game. A kind of I don't don't even quite know how to put it into words. Almost an intuition. He seems to know you know when to make the subs, uh, which subs to bring on. You know they're almost always very astute substitutions. They prove to be very astute substitutions, and really, you know, no better example uh, than in the final of Euro 2016.
0: Yeah, I was also struck by Andre Gomez because obviously he joined Barcelona that summer. Um, but he kind of very rarely featured after the group stages, no? he was yeah. featured in group stages, and afterwards he was kind of phased yeah. out. So I guess it's a it, testament to the strength and depth that uh, they had at that time, right?
1: Yeah, and also the ability of Santos to you know to appraise players and how they're performing, you know, very objectively. Uh, for instance, Elizio was the was the left back. Uh, he like I said, Ricardo Carvalho, great servant for Portugal, but perhaps hadn't been, you know, as rock solid as, as, as you'd expect him to be in the group stages. He was uh, taken out of the team. José Font came in, did a fantastic job. And, uh, you know, then you even had players like, uh, like you said, yeah, Andre Gomes uh, featured a lot in the group stage. Didn't really feature that much, uh, you know, after. Uh, Ricardo Quaresma just kind of came on when he was needed. And so, yeah, you know, uh, really fantastic utilization of, of the squad by Santos. So I guess in
0: 2018, two years later, I am wondering what the atmosphere going through tournament was because they were the holders of the European championships. Um, I remember I was saying to Tom before the podcast that I re-watched the 3-3 against Spain the other day and I was struck by the kind of the intensity of the atmosphere and kind of made me almost depressed to be... Deprived of audiences and football games at the moment, but uh, but what, what what was the kind of atmosphere going into tournaments and how was that tournament appraised, um in terms of this in the context of this Portuguese team? Do you think? I, it's telling what you are maybe.
2: Um, I think there was obviously there's an air of you going into a World Cup in a completely different place that you've ever went into one because you're not Portugal had never went into a World Cup. As a as a champion of anything, and obviously they were going in as as the, you know, the prime representatives of of Europe of UEFA. They were the 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 European champions. So so straight away, there's already a different level of sort of a different level of expectation, a different level of performance that's you know people people are looking on and thinking, right, Ronaldo, two years on from from 2016, and you know the squad squads looking a little bit different now, uh, it's had a little bit of a shake-up, and um, we've saw Fernando Santos and, and what he can do on the European stage, and how he can sort of mastermind the games into into um, into getting some good results for Portugal, and then I think, the um, yeah, as I say, Portugal have always, well, at least since 2000, always got this strange strange pattern where they'll, they'll perform really really well in, in, in the European Championship and then the World Cup it, it always just seems a little bit you know obviously there's a lot more teams and stuff that goes into it you're playing against you know different nations that you know you might not have prepared against but it's, it, it's just a different feel to a World Cup and I, th- I feel like it, in, in 2018 at, at the Spain game it was just the Ronaldo trick, the free kick. it was just unbelievable and then you you go from scoring three goals and then it was quite a tight game against I think it was Morocco next or 1-0 it was a really early goal I think maybe the third or fourth minute from Ronaldo and then it's sort of for like you know 85-86 minutes you're waiting for something else to happen and you know you sort of not not seeing out the game but you sort of just you know when's it going to burst into life and then Obviously, uh, you have you've got a match against a Portuguese coach in the in the former Carlos Gatos, the the Iran game, the the one all, and uh, you know I think conceding that last minute goal, so, you know it, it was disappointing. But the, the best, you know the the most important thing about the group stages is, is that is that Portugal qualified. Uh, you went through, I think joint joint top with a set second place behind Spain, uh, so you know. Qualifying, getting into the into the latter stages, sort of reaffirmed everyone's. The performances might not have blown everyone away, but they didn't blow everyone away really. In in twenty sixteen, you know, it was quite uh, quite pragmatic at times, and uh, you know, there's there's no problem with that if it if it brings if it brings results. And then, obviously, the first knockout game after the group stages, the tournament, it seemed to just be over. It, I mean, Tom, I don't know whether it was the same for you, but. It felt like after the group stages you, you go into that game with, with Uruguay, you know, they're a tough opponent, players like Luis Suarez and they have got a you know a really good squad about them. And it was when the final whistle was blown and it was it was done, it was sort of like couldn't believe how quickly the the World Cup had ended. It felt like it, it should have went on for so much longer and, and obviously it's it's not how football, that's not the way it works, but it felt like someone had just like just turned off a light switch and and that was it we're heading home and it was just it was it was disappointing again really good opponents in in Uruguay but yeah I think the expectation is always going to be different when you go into it as the as the champion or something and Portugal will feel that in the in the Euros as well they're still the defending European champions you know I'll be happy if it keeps getting pushed back because it means it's another year of being European champions. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) but no, as I say, you've got a different level of expectation on your shoulders and it's sort of expectation within amongst home fans, amongst, amongst mass media, but then at the same time, it's sort of like a dual-edged sword because Portugal even after 2016, by some some media outlets, still not taken seriously. Still not taken seriously today. I mean, you only have to look at better odds for. I know they're not a good indication, but they pop up every now and then on on you know on Twitter and, and online, and it's like Portugal are now like the fifth or the sixth favorite to win the European Championships. It's like it just being perennially written off, and it, it seems to seems to continue now, but. Yeah, that my my summarise of of the uh, my summary of the twenty eighteen World Cup is that expectation going into it and then it seemed to just be over in a flash. I don't know if it was the same for you, Tom.
1: Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think also just the fact that certain players were just really weren't in good form, I think, in in absolute contrast to Euro two thousand sixteen. Uh I mean it really struggled to pick out players in 2018 who, you know, really played at the top of their game for Portugal, never really got going. Uh, and there was a couple of players who really were almost disastrous, you could say. I remember uh, that game you mentioned against uh, Morocco, uh, Rafael Guerreiro had a you know an absolute nightmare. He was getting ripped apart. Right, wasn't he? Yeah. And uh, Portugal quite lucky to to win that game in the end. Uh, but then you had players like, for instance, uh, Joao Mario, who, you know, who'd, who'd been kind of uh, since he'd left Portugal after 2016, and he'd never really managed to establish himself at Inter uh, at Inter Milan. You know, he'd been kind of in and out at the side, and then he got loaned out. You had, uh, you know, Bruno Fernandes hadn't really established himself in the side at all. Even Bernardo Silva, it seemed like Fernando Santos wasn't quite sure how best to use him, you know, he. Uh, I remember he, I think he was actually dropped for the Iran game, Bernardo Silva, which is, you know, amazing to think possibly, certainly at that time, Portugal's second most talented player. Uh, and then even in the game against Uruguay, I remember he started out right, but then he was moved in the second half into the middle. And those 45 minutes were, you know, he was superb. And so you, you, at the end of the game, you kind of had a feeling that you know, it's a bit of a shame that Fernando Santos didn't, you know, discover that or try using him there from the start of the tournament. But yeah, a bit of a you know, a bit of a damp squib of a tournament really. Portugal just never really got going, unfortunately. And you know, fair play to to Uruguay, like Aaron said there, you know, good experienced team. I think it's quite interesting. I sometimes like to compare Uruguay in South America to to Portugal in in Europe. If you look at the size of the country. Uh, it's just in, in, incredible, isn't it? The amount of talented players. They they managed to churn out tournament after tournament. And, uh, you know, you have to say as well, two brilliant goals, don't you, by, by Cavani. And so, uh, so yeah, a bit of, bit of a disappointment. But, you know, you can't win them all like uh, Aaron said. Uh, you know, Fernando Santos managed to break the duck in terms of Portugal actually lifting silverware. And so uh, you know, this tournament wasn't a disaster for Portugal, but also, we have to be honest, not really very memorable.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's interesting because it sounds ludicrous, but actually it was the 2019 Nations League triumph that really got me to sit up and take notice of what was happening with Portugal. Because obviously I'm not based in Portugal, I'm no expert in Portuguese football. So when they won the 2019 Nations League, I was kind of thinking, "Whoa, there's something happening here, this is a repeat victory. These are serial winners, like
1: oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's really sorry to cut in there, Alan, but yeah, that, that I think that's a really good point because you know, especially the manner which Portugal won your Euro two thousand and sixteen. I think a lot of people outside of Portugal, maybe even one or two inside Portugal, thought that was uh, you know, oh perhaps this is just a bit of a one off, you know, the kind of the stars aligned and it, Portugal got a bit lucky and they they managed to win. But, uh, yeah, then, you know, winning, uh, coming top again, uh, you know, a couple of years later and doing it in style, really doing it in style, you know, playing. Unbelievable. Really, you could say much better in that game, uh, in, in that tournament than at Euro 2016. It just showed, you know, it was no fluke. You know, this is a very special group of players. Yeah, it was just, I mean... Uh,
2: there's no, there's Alan. You you're not alone. So it's like lots of people, to be honest, have said in the past the the Nations League, whatever you know, irrespective of whatever you believe about the Nations League and and you know it's it, it's prominence within the football world. But it was those performances against high caliber opposition, and it was the it was just the way Portugal were playing. It, it it felt like it was a real it was a real throwback to to you know the start of the to this to the start of the twenty first century that two thousand team in a way but they also could you know really good at finishing the chances off as well. You know, scored an abundance of goals and and also should have scored more. There's been games in the in this you know in this current period of time. I still feel like we're we're sort of in that period of time where you come away from a game i mean like this i think it was the switzerland game the which was the semi-final it was um i think it finished 3-1 i remember thinking like that that could have been you know that could have been five six seven like it was just free-flowing attacking but at the same time you know defensive defensively very good portugal didn't lose a game in, in in the nation's league in the group stages and Still haven't lost the game in the in the whole tournament. Yeah, exactly. Ne- ne- never lost a game in it. I mean, playing against, I think in the uh, in the group, it was the game against Italy. I just just like performances that that we hadn't really we hadn't we hadn't seen for for, for a while in terms of just how how free flowing the football was, and and that that also that's another credit to to Fernando Santos as well because it shows that. It's another sting to to his bow, you know. It's another, it's something in his arsenal as well. They the Portugal can set up a little bit differently and and play with a bit more pace and purpose, and but then also can be can be pragmatic and can shut sides down. You know, in the final, he managed the game very well, and Gonzalo Guedes scored the scored the winner against a very very, you know, a resurgence Netherlands side who were sort of. Coming back into after a couple of years in, in in a relative obscurity, they were sort of coming back to the fore. You know the likes of Virgil van Dijk and um, Deleitte and Frankie uh, Frankie De Jong, like these these type of players, and yeah, obviously got the goal, but just managed the game very well and and defensively looked very sound. Every player knew what the job was, and then they also had that creative freedom. I think when they were going forward, which was. I mean, it was such a this current crop at the minute, it's such a such a talented group of players, and I think, as you say, Tom still haven't lost a game in the Nations League. Constantly pitted, you're constantly pitted in the Nations League with teams who are, you know, seem to be your equivalent. Seem to be you're not playing, you know, countries where you know it's a, it's a ten 0 win against you know a really lowly ranked team. You know, we going to be playing against. The top sides and and it, it it's a great test for Portugal really and I think the, the premise the idea of of the nations league oh where they international friendlies it you know, makes a lot more sense because you're playing against the likes of you know Italy's and now you're playing against the likes of France who Portugal are going to be paired with you know in the euros so obviously a lot of things can change between them and the euros but it's good to play these games and to and to show off a, a variety of styles and, and playing styles so yeah, no, that, that was a magnificent uh, tournament. Still feels strange to even call it a tournament. It feels so yeah. because it's so spaced out. But, yeah. you know, those couple of days between the two, between the semi final and the final, just electric performances. Mm.
0: But I guess, as well, like from the outside at least, it appears that, you know, there's been a kind of degree of not fortune, but. I don't know what the correct word is really, but it's kind of like a perfect like congruence of events, you could say, because like Fernando Santos obviously implemented a really strong kind of foundation in Euro 2016 and just before that. But then also in the intervening years, there's been a real flourishing, as you mentioned, of Portuguese talent, like across Europe. Like, like I don't think there's any country with, you know, the representation across European football of Portuguese players. Like it's quite remarkable. Like if you just, talk a bit about, like, what has happened to create this golden generation where you have, you know, uh, Joao Felix on the rise right at Atletico Madrid, really promising young player, Bruno Fernandez, captain Manchester United at PSG last night, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo in the greatest players in history, but then you have the likes of Diego Jota, uh, Rui Patricio, uh, Joao Moutinho, Andre Gomez, like, what's happened to create this kind of brilliant generation?
1: Yeah, I think, I think one of the reasons is uh probably to do with the domestic football and uh the, just the fact that Portuguese football hasn't got much money, uh, you know, certainly compared to the other big leagues in Europe. And so they ha- they just especially, you know, the big clubs Benfica and, and sporting and uh and Porto, they've been unable to buy top class talent, uh, which they used to be able to do, uh, especially young up and coming talent from uh, from South America, which they used to be kind of, especially Porto and and uh, and Benfica. They almost used to have almost a free run at that at that market, but because first of all, I think other other clubs in other countries are kind of caught up or caught on to that. And they've also got very good scouting networks now, and they kind of get there before uh the Portuguese clubs can buy these players and then and also the end of third party uh, ownership, which was a model which was very important for Portuguese clubs uh that means they just can't compete anymore so Portuguese biggest clubs they really focused a lot more on their academies uh you know if they they can't buy these great great players they're going to have to try and make them. And and they've really just done a fantastic job. You know, sporting traditionally were the club with the with the best academy, but in recent years, uh Benfica especially, you know, they've just been churning out player after player, uh, you know, these these really fantastically talented players, superbly, you know, coached through the through through the youth ranks and and really showing their stuff in, in domestic game and in the European competition. Same with same with Porto. But then we have this problem of again so little money in Portuguese football that these players uh you know are obviously hugely talented are, are snapped up by by clubs with much bigger resources and uh, they just can't Portuguese clubs just can't compete in terms of wages you know as well as uh you know turning down these huge transfer fees and so that's led to to an exodus really of of players It's very interesting that Throughout history uh, of the Portuguese national team, all the major tournaments, there's been more and more uh, foreign-based players making the squads. Uh, you know, Obviously, going way back into the past, it was the squad was, was almost entirely made up of uh, Benfica Sporting and Porto players, one or two of the other clubs uh, as time went on. And, of course, players, not just Portuguese players, all players started moving countries more often. You saw the percentage of Portuguese players who played abroad, Uh, Going up and up, and in the last couple of squads, it really has been something which has never ever happened in Portuguese football. Which has been literally two, three, uh, maybe uh, players based in Portugal uh, who make the squad. All the other players, you know, are playing abroad. But I suppose the big difference is between that and perhaps in the past is, it's like you just said there, Alan. A lot of these players, uh, they're playing for really the, the elite clubs in Europe. You know, they're not playing for kind of second tier clubs in, in Spain or or Italy. You've got, you know, the Man City guys. Haven't you? You've got Cancelo, Bernardo Silva, Ruben Diaz now. You've got, uh, you know, Bruno Fernandes, who's just really taken English football by storm. Is now captain of Manchester United. You know, in, incredible, really, evolution. Uh, Diogo Jota has just gone to Liverpool, of course got Ronaldo, at, uh, you know, at Juventus, you've got even young players like Trincao, uh who's gone to Barcelona, uh, Joao Felix at Atletico Madrid, you know, so you've just got players all over Europe playing for Europe's major clubs, which of course means they're training every day, uh, you know, with these top quality players, they're playing in the Champions League, they're playing against uh, top quality opposition, so it's kind of a situation where success breeds success. Uh, so, yeah, there's no doubt about it. That's been a, a big change in Portuguese football, the, the, the makeup of the Portuguese national team. And there's no doubt about it that, the you know, the national team has benefited hugely from that because you've just got a higher caliber of players and players who feel that they belong and approve that they belong, you know, in the very elite of football, uh, you know, right throughout the squad.
2: Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think, as well as as the senior team, I know you are touching on there, Tom, about the the, the cl- just the the level of clubs that these players are playing at. Uh, recently, two weeks ago, I was in um, in Stril for for the um, the Portugal under twenty one game, and that that's like really really promising generation, and one of the most promising in years. And even then, now Tom. I don't know whether play it's be a correlation of players joining these big teams a little bit earlier in their career, but when you're looking at the start on eleven, and and I mean I was looking at the midfield, and I was thinking, well, of Vatina plays for Wolves in in the um, obviously in the Premier League, you know, some people class it as the best league in the world, most competitive league in the world, and then alongside him you have the likes of Jedson Fernandez, again Spurs, Florentino has just went to to Monaco on loan. Diogo Dalo was was right back. AC Milan. Rafael Liao. AC Milan. Pedro Neto. Wolves. Um, I think Giottes uh, just went to Real uh, Valladolid in, in. I think they're in La Liga. So again, a really competitive league. Um, so you just see him. Even even the young players coming through, and then as you mentioned there, the likes of Sincao, the likes of Ruben Vanagre, the the likes of you know the, these players that they're moving all around Europe at, at 18, 19, 20 years of age and they're gaining experience. It's sad to see them, you know, leave leave Portugal. I mean, if you look at FC Porto, he, he, they're having a fire sale even younger. I mean, they're letting the likes of, of the team you go and then the likes of Fabio Silva, the likes of uh, Thomas Esteves, who, who made his his debut for Reading last night. And he's from a completely different generation. I think Thomas Esteves was born in 2003, so... He's even younger again than that generation. And these players they're just moving about. They're not they're not staying in Portugal for as you know, they never used to stay in Portugal long anyway, but at least I mean, like Tom, when you mentioned Euro twenty sixteen, you've got that midfield that was still a sporting thing, the the likes of William Carvalho at twenty four and Adrian Silva, I think, was, was twenty six, twenty seven. Um, you know, Joao Mario. So, you know, it, it, there's a difference there's a. It just seems like it's happening a lot quicker now. The player sort of comes to the fore, and then you blink, and the and they're gone. They've been sold. And again, there's nothing you or I can do about that. That's just a matter of, of fact. That's the way it is. That's the nature of Portuguese football and the um, sort of the, the the financial the financial gap, the financial disparity between Portugal and the other. You know the the top five leagues. If you you know class Portugal as the sixth league. Those top five European leagues are so much more financially flexible. They can, you know, flex the financial muscles a lot more. Mm.
0: When Cristiano um, finally calls it a day, who do you feel will be the one to take up the mantle as the leader of this team? Wow,
1: well, that's a big question. <laughs> that's a big question because, uh, fortunately for for Portugal, there are quite a few candidates. Uh, you know, you can't really. If you'd asked me that question maybe two or three years ago, I would have said quite definitely. Bernardo Silva, who seemed to be really head and shoulders above uh, all the other emerging players, as you know, you could just see really he was a world class player from the, from the start, and uh, you know, did so well at Monaco, and then getting a the big move to Manchester City, and really just uh, didn't blink. the first two seasons, especially was. I remember, I think what uh, Pep Guardiola uh, saying that he he thought he was uh, their best player in I think his second season there uh, for that for that season. So yeah, he's you know he's definitely one of the candidates. He's perhaps you know by his incredibly high standards. He's uh, perhaps last uh, six or seven months or so he's dropped off a little bit. But, uh, you know, that is just an absolute class player. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him coming back. And he's definitely in a conversation. We have to talk about Bruno Fernandes, of course. What an incredible... Has, has a player ever made such an impact? Coming from, a, you know, what's considered a, a slightly inferior league, going to the Premier League and just going to a major team and just absolutely galvanising that team and kind of, you know, becoming one of the major figures in the league
2: it comes a little bit of a surprise in terms of how well he's done, but it doesn't surprise me at all that he's done well. Because Absolutely, yeah. Because he's just got this this aura about him and this, this personality that, yeah, he's a leader. I uh, saw a video, I think it was yesterday or the day before, of, of uh, him and Alex Sellers sort of shouting at each other, Jordan and Rondo, uh, because Alex Sellers has taken too long to give the ball. And it's like, that's what he's like. He's just, he's on it constantly and that it's those high standards that he sets for himself and everyone around them that when he came into United he, before he went I said United are in a little bit of a rut and they're going to need more than Bruno Fernandes to, 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 to get to where they need to be I mean they want to be up there with City and Liverpool now it's going to take more than him but he'll do a good job in, in, in rising and getting everyone's spirits up and, and lifting the performance. And that's exactly what you what you saw when he when he turned up. He, he, it wasn't just his performance. United were playing better because of him. You know, this is a player that, that has got the talent, but not only the talent he's got, he's got that energy. He's just got Tom I don't know if you'll agree. There's just an aura about
1: Yeah. I think the uh, uh, we get of course Aaron, people like Aaron and me who've you know Focus very much all our our football kind of uh, analysis, and uh, you know uh, all our focus basically on Portuguese football. We get quite often asked about how players will do when they go when they get these big moves, you know, to England or to Spain or well, especially to England. You know, people perhaps don't know too much about them. And I don't really like answering these questions so much because you just most of the time you just don't know. It's you know it's, it's a different level, but. When It came to Bruno Fernandes. That was one player I was absolutely sure who would triumph, you know, who would do well. And uh, you you mentioned it there, Alan, his personality and uh, and Aaron as well, because uh, you have you just kind of have to look at his past. You know, this is a kid who well, this is a player who, when he was a kid 17 years old, decided uh, to leave Portugal, Boavista, and to go and play in the Italian lower leagues because that was you know, that was the the way he thought would would best, uh, you know, enable him to become a you know a a great good player or to help him further his career. You know, how much courage does that take? You know, going to it's such an unusual move. I don't, I can't remember any. You know, he's got no Italian heritage. It's not as if he had an Italian, you know, father or mother or, or grandparents. He just decided to do that because he thought that that would, uh, you know, improve his game, and it, you know, it did. He, you know, he gradually worked his way up through two or three teams in Italy. And uh, by the time he came to sporting, he'd already, I think it was something like 120 games. He'd played in Serie A, you know, in, <laughs> it's incredible. And uh, and then, you know, again, working under Jorge Jesus, one of Portugal's best uh, coaches. He, I think that took his game to, to another level. And so, yeah, I think his his personality, and I think his, you know, his personality is, is obviously very talented, but, I think him, uh, a bit like uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, I'd say players like Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, you know, is is a one-off, but maybe players of the, with the talent of Cristiano Ronaldo, maybe there was, you know, a few dozen or a few hundred even. What makes Cristiano Ronaldo different is his absolute obsession to make the absolute most of his talents. And Bruno Fernandes is just... Chip of the old block is exactly the same. You know, I just mentioned it there. He just that he, you could see everything he does. Uh, you know, the way he trains, the way he kind of uh, thinks about the game, is everything is geared towards making the absolute most of his talents, You know, and of his ability. So uh, I mean, just in pure talent, in in terms of pure talent, again, I'd say there's a few players who are equivalent to Bruno Fernandes, perhaps even more. But it's just that you know, that attitude of him, that drive, that obsession really, to make himself the, you know, the very best he can be, which makes him a very special player. So yeah, anyway, going back to, <laughs> to your question, which seems ages ago, who's going to be the, the man to fill the void for Ronaldo? Uh, yeah, really, really tough to say. But uh, I'd say perhaps you'd have to say now, uh, Fernandes has is, is, is got the shot of being Portugal's main man um mm,
0: mm, Yeah. Well, it's definitely interesting. I mean, of course, it's virtually impossible to replace Ronaldo. Bruno definitely will be from the outset anyway, the, the most likely candidate. Um. But then, just to kind of finish up. With, what's your feeling in terms of Portuguese football going forward, both domestically
2: in the league and also in international? Um. In for me, internationally, this is one of the most hopeful I've ever been since I've been following um a So. I mean, which seems like a, you know an entire lifetime. Uh, but I think this this crop of players now, the balance of the squad, and the fact that without when Ronaldo isn't in the side, there's been a couple of games now where he hasn't been in the side. Portugal have you know have shown that they can, you know, they can compete. The only worry is that sometimes chances will fall to to these really talented players, but they don't have that. That, that real knack of goal scoring, you know, sometimes chances will fall and you think if that was Ronaldo, he'd buried that. But that comes in time and decision making and stuff comes in time for the likes of Tinkau of, of and Joao Felix and, and, you know, players of that ilk who are just supremely talented. But no, I'm I'm really, really hopeful. I mean, I if you, if you, you know, if you check the website or if you follow us on Twitter, you'll see I just go on about the under-21s constantly and the under-20s. Uh, just because I think there's just so much, there's an abundance of talent there and, you know, youth football doesn't always translate, in fact, the majority of time it doesn't translate into senior football but we're seeing a lot of those players now, the likes of Sinkal hasn't been making the under-21 squad because, you know, he's either going to the senior squad or, you know, he's in in the reckoning for the senior squad and then you've got the likes of João Felix again could still play for that and that's his age group, the under-21 group but, you know, he's, 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 busy playing with the seniors and playing with the likes of Ronaldo and Bruno Fernandes. So really, really hopeful domestically. I'd like to see it's hard because I, I mean, in an ideal world, I'd like to see the players sort of from a, from a selfish standpoint, the league, the Premier League to be as competitive as possible and, and to stay maybe just one or two more years. But then the financial constraints are so, are so heavy that they're so tight that the best you can really hope for is, is one Portuguese team to start doing, performing better in Europe and sort of utilising the youth. So what you're seeing now with um, with Sporting is, is is that they've got a manager there in in, in Amarim who's a big believer in youth. There's lots of players coming through there and it's a very exciting time. To be honest, I think, aside from, you know, Whatever your opinion on, on the presidency and, and the way the club is run, on the field they seem to be improving, and you know that's exciting to see. I just like seeing young players come through in Portugal, and I'd like them to stay until you know a little bit longer until they are you know deemed a bit more ready, and then and then you know sort of sort of flock the nest with. It is, um, as I say, that's that's my selfish standpoint. But in terms of the sell us out, very excited. There's no reason why Portugal don't go into these Euros and think we're going to win this tournament because you know there's nobody, there's nobody there that, that that I fear. There's no one there that Portugal should fear. You know, France, top side, Spain, top side, Germany. You know, all of these teams. Holland obviously was agent lately, but you know Portugal can beat them all. I believe that and uh, I don't see why you can't.
1: Yeah, yeah, really. I can't really add much to what uh, Aaron's just said there. You know, I think for this is probably the most exciting time ever to be a Portuguese football fan, uh, uh, you know, a fan of the national team, certainly without any doubt at all, you know, it really is the golden era of Portuguese football. And, uh, well, like Aaron just finished off there, I think in the in the past when you come up against a team like France or, you know, even I remember... Uh, when Portugal had good, solid players, but maybe 10, 15 years ago, you'd come up against France and you'd be a little bit worried that you might get a bit embarrassed here. I remember, you know, a couple of 4-0 thrashings and stuff, which uh, nowadays you just really couldn't see that. Nowadays, any team in the world, literally Portugal can uh, come up against any team in the world and uh, you you feel confident that Portugal can match them, you know, give them a game and uh, got as as good a chance of winning uh, as they have. And so, and, uh, you know, well, Aaron also just mentioned, touched on the the under 21s there, which, you know, we haven't even talked about. Portugal got such a rich, richly talented squad at the moment, but there is every uh, possibility that, you know, it could continue for the next few years. So, in terms of the national team, you know, just, uh, it's just it's just brilliant. Long may it continue. In terms of the domestic game, uh, again, uh, I think Aaron's spot on. It's, it's a bit un- unfortunate, really, but. I think it is the quality of football played in Portuguese uh, in the Premier League, Portuguese club sides now is really, you have to say, in a happy time for Portuguese football, this is probably the elephant in the room because <laughs> it's uh, it, it really is substantially below, I'd say, the quality of football which was played even five, ten years ago in Portugal and to be be bluntly honest, I really can't see uh, Portuguese club sides competing at all in Europe for certainly not the Champions League and, uh, you know, perhaps going for, for deep runs in the in the Europa League is the best they can hope for but, uh, you know, I hope I'm wrong. Maybe these things tend to be swings and roundabouts and uh, like we've touched on in this pod the, the Portuguese clubs are putting a lot of emphasis on their academies and that's, that continues to bear fruits. Uh, unfortunately, of course, a lot of the the best players. the Problem is, they as soon as they make a bit of a name for themselves, gone. But uh, you know, maybe maybe things will change. You know, lots of uh, rumors, aren't there, and lots of talk about some major changes going on in European football. Uh, even talk of this European League, and uh, you know, the things just being completely redesigned. Really, the way football is is kind of formatted in all over Europe. So, you know, who knows, maybe maybe that might be beneficial in some way to Portuguese football. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'll just sum it up with Portuguese club football, um, not in the best state at the moment. Portuguese national team, uh, probably in as good a state as it's ever been.
0: Mm. Yeah, I know it's, it, it's certainly going to be interesting to see how things develop both in terms of European championships in the next World Cup, but also in terms of supposed European Super League. But uh but yeah, that's a conversation for another day, I guess. But uh, anyway, thank you very much to both of you. Mucha uh Where can we find you both? And do you have any, any pieces uh, to plug uh, for our listeners who want to delve deeper into Portuguese
2: football? Uh, is that what you are, maybe? Yeah, um, so you can find me at uh, proxima journadacom um, So if you can find me... The social, which is probably a little bit easier, so that's crossing the Jornada one. Uh, on there in the bio, there's you know the links to to um, to a podcast, there's links to the website. Uh, the website is, is uh, it's divided up into different sections. So, you've got the Portuguese abroad, you've got you know Portugal domestically at home, you've got a moment in time which looks at like classic pieces that go back. So if you want to just do a little bit of reading on, you know, you might not know about some of the classic teams. And then also there's an interview section where sort of um, over the past couple of years I've caught up with some names from Portuguese football and got their insight. And, you know, I really enjoy doing those. But, yeah, just just have a little look through. There's nothing, no specific pieces uh, that, I'll, that I'll, you know, want to, to plug. But just there's something on there for everyone who's looking to... to um, yeah, to, to to know a bit more about Portuguese football. Great, sounds brilliant. In few Uh
1: Yeah, same thing really. Just head over to my Twitter account, which is Portugal One. The P O R T U G O A L One, the number one, uh, and that just links to uh, you know everything uh, I write or, or or talk about Portuguese football. And uh, yeah, it, again covers you know domestic football or Portuguese abroad. National team. Uh, so, yeah, just head over there. Uh, anything like this, uh, I just retweet Aaron Streets anyway, so you got it all covered.
0: Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And for me, you can find me at Azul Fili on Twitter, and my latest piece is the La Liga Lora on the profile of Felipe Coutinho, who insights from experts in Brazil and in Spain and in Italy as well, and in England, of course. Uh, Go over and check that out. But uh, anyway, guys, thank you very much for both of you. It's a very interesting conversation. Hope listeners enjoyed it, It and uh, we'll see you next week for our next episode. Thanks guys, and bye.